tonight. God is good, amen. We get together and hang out with each other. Tonight really is the second half of the prayer of Daniel, and we're going to be getting to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And so as we get there, I want to set the stage for you, because how many in here feel like God never answers their prayers? I have prayed some prayers for a very, very, very long time, okay? And I don't know about you, but there are times when it's like, you know, I think the prayers, maybe they bounce off the ceiling or something like that. Something goes on in our prayer life, and we think maybe God didn't hear us right, or maybe he's waiting a little longer than we'd like him to. Uh, Tonight we look at a prayer, as I shared with you, one of the three greatest prayers that weren't prayed by Jesus. We'll leave Jesus' prayers as the best, but... Uh, of the three there in, in Ezra and Nehemiah and also here in Daniel, all in chapter 9, these incredible prayers of these men of faith of the Old Testament. And we're going to see tonight a, a prayer that is extremely specific, one that's asking for the Lord's hand. It seems to be completely in line with the Lord's will. And yet what we're going to see is that God chooses not to answer this particular prayer and actually still hasn't answered this particular prayer. That it's been 2,500 years, and God still hasn't fully answered this particular prayer. But from what we know from Scripture, not only is he going to answer this particular prayer, it is this prayer that sets us up to understand almost two-thirds of the book of Revelation. And so as we look at the rest of this prayer, and as we... Actually, we'll read to the end of the chapter and we'll begin to look at this tremendous prophecy of these 70 weeks that would be appointed. Um, We're going to see a prayer that God one day is going to answer. And it really begins uh, quite a long time, nearly a thousand years prior to this with some other, uh, other prayers, but very specifically one of David in Psalm 94. It says there, O Lord... To whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. And he asks a question in verse 3, and it's a question that I think sometimes we ask. How long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? How long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves, and they break in pieces your people, O Lord. That's a question, and it's a prayer. God, how long are you going to let this go? How long is it going to be that the children of Israel suffer? How long will it be that the children of God live under oppression? How long will it be that God withstays his hand of judgment, of justice, of righteousness, of vengeance? Because God does have that side. Uh, There's a side we don't like to talk about of God's nature, and that's his vengeance, his wrath, his justice, his judgment. And just as certain as his grace is absolutely abounding 
and is there for all who will call upon the name of the Lord, so is his justice, judgment, wrath, and vengeance waiting for those who refuse to repent. And very specifically, for those who torture, test, spit upon, defame, not just the Jewish people, but also the land that God gave to them. And so the picture that we're going to begin to get, uh, we also need to look at yet one more verse, which is found in the book of Joel. So if you want to turn there, you can turn to Joel chapter 3, because yet here is another question. Joel 3, verses 1 and 2, and it says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, and I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That valley is the valley of Megiddo. It is that place which we call Armageddon. It is that final battle that will be fought. And it says, and I will enter into this, notice what it says, into judgment with them there. Who is the them? The them is all the nations of the earth. And then it says exactly why God will return to this earth with justice, vengeance, and justice. And he says, I will enter into judgment with them, the nations of the earth there, on account of my people, That would be the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have also divided up my land. Your Bible says in the Old Testament, referring to a time that yet hasn't happened, that is recorded in the book of Revelation and alluded to here in the book of Daniel, that in the very last days, that the reason that the Lord will pronounce judgment on this earth and its inhabitants, all the nations thereof, is because of what the nations of the earth have done to the nation Israel and to the land that God gave to them. It is extremely important that you understand that as we move forward here in Daniel chapter 9. Because what's in view here now makes a whole bunch of sense. When you understand that God has made promises to the nation Israel that apply to no other group or people on this earth, that as he made those promises, surely he will keep them, and he's made some very specific promises, and apparently he has not answered the righteous prayer of a man like Daniel, a man like David, a man like Isaiah, a man like Zechariah, and he still this day allows us to walk in the age of grace. Make no mistake, God has a plan to square up the books. And he is going to square up the books, and that day is coming. And so as we look at the rest of Daniel chapter 9, it is with that in view And when we get to the end of the time tonight, I'm going to begin what we'll finish next week as we decode the whole 70 weeks prophecy. But you're going to see that God's been planning all along for this. That he has has made allowance, if you will, for his children Israel. And he intends to keep every last 
promise he has made to them, including the land that is being fought over right now, uh, including the fact that they will, once they're in the land, not ever cease to be a nation again, ever. They were dispersed, they were divided, they were scattered, they've been brought back, and so there's only one thing left to happen on the eternal timeline for the Lord to initiate all these things. And that's to take the church out of here. And that could happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we could all be gone, and everything else that the book of Revelation says will happen will begin to unfold. And so tonight, Daniel's Prayer Part 2 will begin with the petition of that prayer. Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak through his word. Father, we're so grateful that the author of time has time in his hands. And, and Lord, you have known from the very moment that you put Adam on this earth when the last day would be. You know alone when the trumpet will sound. You alone know when the dead in Christ will rise. And we who are alive and remain will meet you in the air. God, you know what the appointed time is. You know when that final week, the final period of mankind's history on this earth without righteous rule, that age of grace will come to a close. And so, Lord, as we spend time in your word tonight, we pray that you would use it for your purposes, for your plans, strengthen us, encourage us, help us to know what manner of people we ought to be in these last days, living soberly, looking forward to and hastening the great appearing of our God and King Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to be busy about that business tonight as we study your word. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Picking up in verse 16 here in Daniel 9. We're now continuing in the prayer that began in verse 3, and it begins there, O Lord, according to all your righteousness. Now remember that when that prayer is prayed, it's a truth. It's not just a petition. It is calling upon the Lord's character. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, and he alone is righteous in all his ways. And so as Daniel cries out to him, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, he's really saying, Lord, just as Jesus did there in Matthew 6, not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, your righteousness be accomplished in in this prayer. Your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. It's important to realize that, that Daniel is, is stepping into the realm of self-examination and self-proclamation. He's saying with a loud voice, we blew it, we're in trouble, we did it, it wasn't somebody else, we're not here in Babylon because you weren't fair, God, you are righteous, we're here because we deserve to be here, and we're now asking for mercy, we're asking for grace. Family of God, if you want a key to an effective prayer life, one of them is admit your faults, confess your sin, let God know that you know that you were wrong, and throw yourself upon the mercy of the court. Because that is the way you get his ear. You don't get his ear by doing what we do in our Western society, which is to play the blame shift game. It wasn't me, Lord. 
I didn't do it. You know, after all, the people I live with, the people I was born with, the guy I live next door to, the woman who's across the street, our nation, our president, our Congress, everyone else is to blame. Daniel recognizes not only do the people have a huge hand in it, but he himself has a hand in it. We are rarely family of God innocent ourselves. I can tell you, I do not pray as I should, as often as I should, for our Congress, for our Senate, and for our President. I don't. I get upset. I get angry. I get miffed. I'm like, I'm not praying. I'm just let them have it themselves. What, that is dumb. Can I tell you that's dumb? Because whatever happens to them happens to me, happens to us. And as much as I think they are a bunch of knuckleheads at times, I still need to be praying for them, and I need to admit that I am the beneficiary of living in the greatest nation on God's earth. And so I need to accept the, the responsibility for the things that are partially mine. It says, let your anger, your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all of those around us. That is a stone-cold admission of we blew it. When they entered into the land, God gave them some very specific direction. He said, do not take up wives from the, the peoples that are there. He told Joshua and Caleb when they entered into the land, basically to slay everybody. Don't be defiled with them. Don't take up the customs. Don't practice their religion. Don't do any of those things. And yet over time, they say, ah, you know what? The Canaanites aren't that bad. You know, the Amorites, they're okay. The Edomites, I mean, after all, they make some wicked date pie. You know, it's just like, kind of hang with them a little bit. Daniel realizes the problem is them. It always starts with us. In your prayer life, the first thing that you should be doing is admitting your part, whatever it is. God doesn't ask us to confess the things we didn't do, but to simply say, you know what, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. And for my part, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And then begin to pray through what is that sphere that affects you. That's your immediate family, that's us as a church, that's our town, that's our county, that's our state, our nation, our world. Lord, we've sinned against you, all of us. And he says, now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant. To get God's ear, you must begin with confession. To get God's ear, you must begin with confession. God doesn't hear the prayer of the person who keeps their sin to themselves and says, I'm going to keep this, and oh, by the way, could you? God's not listening to that prayer. He wants you squared up before you go any further. Confess first, then move on. He says, therefore, hear the prayer of your servants and his supplications. For the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. And so now he begins to get into the meat of this. God, we blew it so bad that your temple, your dwelling place, lies in ruins because we were so carnal. It's been destroyed. How often is that true in our own lives? Though this applies chiefly to the nation Israel, it's also symbolically true to us. When we allow our bodies, which are the Holy Spirit's dwelling place, 
when we allow our lives to be affected by sin, when we allow ourselves to be taken captive and ruined, we can say the same thing about ourselves. Lord, your temple is in ruins. Make your face shine upon it again. I confess my sin. It's my fault. I did it. I need you to shine on your temple once again because it's a mess. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. Notice what it says. How many righteous are there according to Paul? None. Not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? He's acknowledging that in this prayer. He's saying, you know what? You're, you alone are righteous, O God. We blew it. We're calling on you, not because we're righteous. You know, it wasn't because we went to the temple and gave an extra offering. It wasn't because we hung out for 40 days and 40 nights and we prayed and fasted. It's because you alone, O God, are righteous. But because of your great mercies, notice that, your great mercies. Great are, is your faithfulness, O God. For your mercies are new every morning. Your compassions, they fail not. That's the character of God. Daniel is praying for the character of God to be applied to the situation. He's not praying for his will. He's praying for God's will. He knows what God's character is. And when you know your God, you can pray effectively to your God. When you don't know your God, you don't pray very effectively. Matter of fact, I've prayed some very lame prayers. I've asked God to give me things that I shouldn't have ever had. I've asked God to do things that he shouldn't do. When I know God and his character, I can pray effectively. Because of your great mercies, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and for your people who are called by your name. And so he makes it very clear the object of this is the Lord for his holy city, which is Jerusalem, for his people, which are the Jews, and for his namesake, for Yahweh, Lord of hosts. And so he says some interesting things here. There are actually ten pleas that are presented in this short little time. He says, turn your anger and your wrath away from Jerusalem, your holy city. Think of this. Has God's wrath actually been turned away from Jerusalem even to this day? It's the most divided city on earth. It is the most contested city on earth. There is still no temple on the Temple Mount. Think on these things for just a moment as we move forward. Hear my prayers. Notice these are petitions. They're pleas. They're cries of the heart. God, I, he, what he's really saying with that is I understand why you might not be listening. Isn't that awesome? I understand, God, why you might not be listening because there have been times when I don't deserve for you to listen to my prayers. But hear my prayer. And that's a plea. He's asking God, turn your ear towards me and hear what I have to say. Hear my petitions. In other words, actually listen to the substance of what I'm asking. Don't just hear the words, listen to the substance. And of course, God being omniscient and omnipotent and all those things, hears our prayers all the time. The question is, is he going to do anything with them? Because his word declares to us that his, our sins have separated us from him so that he does not hear our prayers. Isaiah recorded that. Look on favor on your sanctuary. Why do you suppose that God would allow his sanctuary to be destroyed? Because it was defiled. 
It wasn't being used for his purposes. It was being used for every other purpose. That's why when Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it, that's why he was so furious. You have made my father's house. He says, it's my father's house that you defiled, and you've made it a den of thieves. It's no longer a sanctuary unto the Lord. It's a place of merchandise. Daniel understands that. And he understands it 500 years before Jesus would go into the temple. Incline your ear to hear. That gives this picture. It's, it's like you have all probably experienced either a parade, maybe a ball game or something where you're sitting in a non-optimal position and you have to kind of crane your ear around, maybe cup your hand to it. It, it does something. It's it called amplification. As those sound waves bounce into that spot inside of your hand, it actually causes it to seem a little bit louder. And so what he's saying is, Lord, I, I need you to hear this really badly. And if, if for some reason you're not turned this way, would you please turn this way? Because I need to tell you something. Your kids do this by pulling on your clothes sometimes. You know, they want you to incline your ear. Open your eyes. You ever talk to somebody who won't look at you? You know they're not listening. They're like picking their fingernails. Lord, look at me. I'm pouring out my heart to you. He is pleading with God. See the desolations that your city bears that holds your name. He says, Lord, remember what I said last time. Daniel has now been in captivity for 66 years. Very important you remember that. Because when we get to these weeks of years, 70 of them, it'll all tie together when you figure it all out. The desolations of your city. Forgive our sins. When we ask, what does he do? We confess he is faithful and he is just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen. First John 1 9. Notice what he says next to listen and act. That's the part that we have a tough time waiting on God for. I am pretty confident he hears my prayers most of the time because I don't walk in too much open rebellion to him. Every once in a while I do something dumb. But generally speaking, I'm pretty quick to say, you know what, Lord, that was silly, and I really need to talk to you. Could you could you hear me? The big thing I want him to do is do something with it, though, right? When you pray, don't you want him to act on it? And then he says something, the one thing that we all hate. Do not delay. Lord, I don't want to hear wait. I don't want to hear next week. don't want to hear next month. Next year, certainly not next millennia, certainly not two millennia from now, not two and a half millennia from now. Lord, please, no. Act. Do it now. Don't delay. Daniel is asking God. He's not telling God. And this is an intercessory prayer. He's pleading on behalf of the people. The people are a mess. They're, frankly, they're a joke. They, they haven't learned much in their captivity. And many of them still deserve to be in captivity, but in God's mercy, he's going to set them free anyway. Very similar, by the way, to Moses' prayer in Exodus 32. It says there, beginning in about, I think, verse 11 or so, it says, it says, Moses pleaded with the Lord. He's begging the Lord. 
And he goes through this whole spiel, if you will, of how they had been in captivity and the Egyptians are blaspheming God and he's just going, you ought to kill them, Lord. Take care of us and wipe out the Egyptians. The crazy thing is, God not only heard that, he acted on it immediately. Because at the end of that prayer, it says, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to the Jewish people. Because God was mad with the Jews. They, they, they were still messing up. And if you remember, as they went into the wilderness and wandered around for 40 years, they were not exactly a stellar example of faith, amen? They were kind of like a, they were kind of like a moving blasphemy feast or something. You know, it's like every time Moses took off somewhere, they were out doing something heinous. Does God hear those prayers? Does God answer those prayers? Is God aware of our situation? Does God hear our prayers now in our time of need, in our, in our nation, in our world? Is God listening? I believe with all of my heart God still hears these prayers, and I believe with all my heart God still answers these prayers. But as we're going to see, he does not always answer them immediately, and he does not answer them in the necessary affirmative. Sometimes he answers them by saying, well, if you wait another 500 years, you're going to get the answer to that. Daniel prayed knowing his God. Notice the things. Listen, forgive, hear, act. For your sake, he says, O God. Because you're what's riding on all this, Lord. That's the crazy part. You know, we sit here and think about ourselves. But imagine imagine the, what God's putting up with in his complete and utter righteousness, his holiness, when he looks at us. He looks at the world. And he still allows us to live anyway. You ever thought about how how righteous and just God would be if he just barbecued the whole world? You know, he just like allowed the sun to move out of its orbit and kind of go by and just... Just little charcoal dust spinning off into space. I mean, he'd be perfectly just doing that. I mean, I I would have no problem. Okay, we deserve it. That's how much love God has for his creation. Think about it. That's how much love God has for his creation, for us. He doesn't do it. His mercies are new every morning. When you wake up, God's not thinking about how he can fry you. He's thinking about how much he loves you, how much he loves us, how, how much he wants that relationship to be right. Daniel moves on now to kind of exhibit the power of this prayer in verse 20 and says, And now while I was speaking... Praying and confessing my sin. Amen. What an awesome picture that is. He's speaking. That word is translated there from the Hebrew into, into the word speaking. means to carry on conversation. It's not some, you know, ethereal prayer language. It isn't, you know, it isn't that Daniel is using lofty words. He's not digging through his thesaurus trying to figure out how to impress God with the best language he can possibly use. He's having a conversation with God. God, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. You know, it's like when you sit down with your spouse or you sit down with a friend or maybe a family member and you're just pouring out your heart. It's just like, man, I don't even know how I got here. I feel like an idiot. 
This is the dumbest thing I've ever done. And you go through that process of articulating where you're at. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's what Daniel's doing. He's articulating to God, yeah, I, I know we've blown it. He's praying. He's keeping it in a proper perspective, recognizing who God is. And he's confessing his sin. Notice it says my sin, his sin, personal sin, and the sin of my people. He identifies himself with the people who are in trouble with God. Now think about it for a second. For all that you already know about Daniel, do you think Daniel was in all that much trouble with God? I would say probably not. I would say if there was anybody of all the children of Israel that was really not in too much trouble with God, it was Daniel and his three friends. I'm thinking they're pretty much okay. They're kind of like, you know, that, that would be Billy Graham as opposed to, you know, a group of people who barely know the Lord who just got saved, okay? It's, it's a huge difference. But he identifies and says, my people, Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God. Notice the personal pronouns here. For the holy mountain of my God. And yes, while I was speaking in prayer, notice Gabriel comes back. The man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the beginning, caused had been caused swiftly to fly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now I want you to understand that what that actually is saying, that from the time Gabriel spoke, the time Gabriel disappeared, and this, if you look at how fast you could read this prayer in a normal tongue, we're talking five minutes. Gabriel's back with the answer five minutes later. And he says, he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand. In other words, he's coming with the answer. So the answer to this prayer is what's coming next in the 70 weeks prophecy. Extremely important you lay hold of it. So what he's been asking for, God, when are you going to deal with the world for what they've done to Israel? When are you going to come and pass judgment on the unrighteous? When are you going to set the books correct? When are you going to do these things on behalf of your holy name and the Jewish people? When are you going to do that? He said, I've given you the skill to understand, and at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you. In other words, God said, hey, Gabriel, come on up here. I'm going to give you the answer, then you can go back and tell Daniel. I've come to tell you that you are greatly beloved, and therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. And so he, he says to him, you know what? Just as we saw in that prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, God answered that prayer. Actually, we have the answer recorded in verses 15, 16, and 17 right there. Because remember it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their prayers and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And remember that prayer? You know what it says right after that? And now my eyes will be open, my ears will be attentive to the prayer made in this place, for I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, if you keep my statutes and my judgments, I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler of Israel. 
God said, you do your part, I guarantee you I'll do mine. And mine is, there's going to be a ruler for Israel forever. See, God's in the answering prayer business. Does God answer these prayers? Yes, he does. When we call in repentance, when we call in humility, the answers come screaming back from heaven. They may not always be immediate, but they are perfectly timely according to God's plan and purpose. They're exactly when he wants us to hear that answer, and they are exactly the things that he has to say. The problem is that sometimes we are not willing to wait. And so then we spin off in our little tangents and we try and figure it all out ourselves. And in the process, we end up being absolutely overwhelmed because we haven't waited for God's answer. Paul, as he was writing in Romans chapter 8, reminds us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is constantly interceding for us. And you have to remember that in your own prayer life, and you have to remember that with regard to prophetic things. God knows alone the day and the time that the Son of Man comes. God the Father does. No one knows but God the Father, not even the Son, Scripture says. God the Father alone knows. So from his perspective, he has always had the answer in view. Our problem is we're trying to figure out when he's going to bring that answer as opposed to looking at him and trusting him with the answer. We're actually trying to sometimes force the answer to occur. And that's why people make dumb, silly, false predictions about such things as when the rapture is going to happen and when you know the, the Lord's going to return and all of those things. Because if we are waiting for the Lord in his word, will, and way, then we end up having the right timing. Any other way, you don't have the right timing. It says there in verse 26 of Romans chapter 8, And likewise the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how we should pray as we ought. For the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And now he who searches the hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So that prayer that's prayed by Daniel is absolutely certain to have an answer. The question is, when? The prayer of David, the answer is, when? Joel's prophetic prayer, the answer is, when? We don't know. Exactly. But we do know the days and the times. Gabriel arrives to give Daniel the understanding. And in essence, what God says, Daniel, I hear you. I know it's bleak. Daniel, I hear you. But this time isn't going to ask forever. Daniel, I hear you. I know this captivity has been hard. But it's going to be over. Daniel, I hear you. The answer's coming. Daniel, I hear you. You have to wait. See, God heard the prayer. And God's going to answer the prayer. And so the answer comes in the form of this prophecy of the 77s and these two coming princes. And so in light of that question being asked, 
And Gabriel coming back and say, I've given you the answer right here. God sent me back here so that you would understand and know the answer. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Very important you get the context right here. For your people. Who are your people? They're not Christians, so this is not the church. They are the Jewish people. So this is not just the church at large and and us, so to speak. It is very specifically the nation Israel, the Jewish people, Daniel's people. Daniel was a Jew. He was a Jew in captivity. So when people try to symbolically apply this to the church, they are actually taking this verse out of context to do so, and they are actually taking the plain meaning of it and making it symbolic when the plain meaning of it is an answer to a Jewish man's prayer who is praying as a Jew in captivity in Babylon under the rule of Cyrus the Mede, when in fact God is saying, for your people, and notice, for your holy city. And so, again, remember the prayer of David, remember Joel's prayer, remember Daniel's prayer, and now look at the answer. The answer is, I've heard you 70 weeks. In other words, you want to know the answer? The answer is, there are 70 weeks. And the word that's used there and translated weeks is the Hebrew word heptad. And a heptad is actually can mean all kinds of things, and we'll look at that in a moment. But it means, in this case, weeks of years. So he begins to lay these things out, and he begins to now tell us what will happen. Now remember, it's for the Jewish people. Remember, it is for the nation Israel. So you have to apply what follows next specifically to the Jewish people and to the nation Israel. You can't divest it from its context, otherwise you miss the entire meaning of this this particular passage of Scripture. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. What's the only way that you can have your sin wiped, wiped away? Faith in Christ. Amen? So if you're a Jew and you don't have faith in Christ, how much end of sins do you have? The answer is not many. Matter of fact, it's none is the real answer. So it's very clear what's going on here. To make reconciliation for iniquity. In other words, to pay the price for those things that stain your life. Specifically, the Jewish people's stains on their lives. There is only one way that can happen. So what's being said here is 70 weeks are determined for the nation Israel, for the holy city, which is Jerusalem. And when that happens, what will happen is they're all going to be saved. They're all going to have their sins remitted. And I can tell you right now, that hasn't happened. And it has never happened in the course of human history yet. Seventy weeks are determined to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. What's the only way you can have everlasting righteousness? To have faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? So it's real clear here that what's in view is there's a point in time when the Jewish people in mass will become saved. 
to seal up vision and prophecy. So if the vision and the prophecy hasn't yet been fulfilled, could this possibly have already been fulfilled? The answer is no. And so if there are things pertaining to the nation Israel, like God gathering together all of the nations of the world into one place to have judgment upon them for what they have done, for God to answer the question that David asked, how long will the wicked prosper if those things remain yet unsolved? then has this prophecy come to pass? And the answer is no. So we know that this lies yet future. So Daniel's prayer is yet to be answered in the future, and it comes in the form of this prophetic view of 70 weeks of years to seal up the vision, the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Very specifically, there are things here that can only apply to the children of Israel, to the holy temple, to the land of Israel, and they have not yet happened. So, very clear who this is talking about. The church is not the focal point of this prophecy. It has a great impact upon us because our King, Jesus, is the spoken of anointed one, the Messiah that's going to come. And so he's the one that's in view here, of course, and we have received him. And so we walk in these things as believers in Christ, but the actual application of the prophecy itself applies specifically to the Jewish people and to the holy city, Israel. I want to be really clear with this, because this is where those who... Uh, believe that the nation Israel God is done with, that he has no plan for them, that they've been absorbed into what we call the church. Uh, This prophecy causes them great trouble because they cannot say that these things have occurred. The nation Israel is estranged from God. If you don't believe that, look how most of the Jews in the United States uh, act today. They are as secular and as carnal and non-religious a group of people as you will ever find. Rarely are they orthodox. Rarely do they, you know, even express their faith. For the most part, they are secularists. They are hardly saved. The nation Israel hasn't received the message. It hasn't received the vision. It hasn't received the prophetic view of the last days because to this day they remain a secular nation. One of the most secular nations on earth. When you look at the nation Israel today, You look at that Dome of the Rock Mosque. That's exactly where the temple is supposed to be. Um, Isn't doing a whole lot of anointing of the most holy place when you have the Dome of the Rock Mosque sitting there, which is the third most holy site in all of Islam next to Medina and Mecca. Hasn't happened. Can't happen. As long as that puppy's sitting there. Temple Mount is occupied, in essence, by Islam. The Jews have to get permission to even go on it, much less do anything with it. All seven of the predictions in this vision, I believe, belong to the future because they belong to the nation Israel. Each waits its fulfillment. And so as we wrap up tonight's study, I want to cover just a few things to set the stage for next week, which we'll we'll dig into this prophetic view. 
those 77s that are that are being talked about, the word heptad, uh, we use actually very similar terms like the word dozen. You can have a dozen of anything, right? You can have a dozen eggs, you can have a dozen cows, you can have a dozen people. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything other than 12 of something. What 12 of something is depends on what you add to it. So the context determines what is meant here. How long have the Jewish people been in captivity? That would be 70 years has been the appointed time. Why is that? Because they had skipped the seventh year of each of 490 years, so they had skipped letting the land lay fallow in that year of rest. And so it's very clear that what's in view here is the 490 years. And so we'll put that in play next week. So this is, in essence, a week of years that's being talked about. So there are 70 weeks of years or 490 years. That's the thing you need to lay hold of mathematically this week. We'll get the rest of it next week. It says in Leviticus 25, verses 3 and 4, For six years sow your fields, six years prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the year the land is to have have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields nor prune your vineyards. So the Sabbath rest of the land is the reason. Notice the reason that God says he's going to deal with the nations of the world because of his land. God still cares about the little land that is now being fought over. That's the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and the nation of Israel. As far as God's concerned, it's all his. It belongs to him, and he gave it to the Jewish people. And he says that that land is supposed to be under his control, and because it's not under his control, that is the land that is still in view as we look at these 70 weeks. So as we see things starting to come apart in the Middle East, it's going to be very clear exactly where this is all going to end up. Therefore, I believe that these are weeks of years, verses 25 to 27, and I want to get through reading these and then give you a few things to chew on until we gather together next Wednesday night. Once the period of 70 weeks has been introduced, Gabriel begins to speak of two key people. Very important people. Those two key people are people of whom we already have seen little glimmers of, and the book of Revelation speaks very clearly of specifically one of them. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the very important term, the anointed one. That, that is the Hebrew word Mashiach. It is the Greek word Christoph. It means Christ. It is Messiah until the Messiah. That's what's being said. This is the one and only time that we find the name Messiah in the Old Testament applied directly to the one who's going to come. The ruler, until he comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So just do some simple math. That would be 69 sevens. 69 heptads, those would be weeks of years. And so we're speaking of a period of time that is exactly 483 years. There will be 483 years until. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. 
and it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Very, very, very important. Digest this this week, because when we go to take and break this down next week, it, it, the, the blinders will come off. For those of you who have never understood why the book of Revelation says what it says, you're going to get it after you get this passage. And after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The anointed one is the Messiah, the Lord of glory. Amen? Notice it says after the 62. That does not preclude the seven. So this is after the total of 69. The seven is previous. So if it's after the 62, it includes the seven that are previous because there are seven and 62. So this is after the 69 sevens. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come. So here comes another person that comes in view. One is the Messiah. Very clear who that is. That's Jesus who is the Christ. The next, who is the prince who will come. He shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Gee, I wonder who this is. wonder who that guy could be. We haven't heard anything about him yet, have we? Of course we have. He's the boisterous little horn. He's none other than the Antichrist. The prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. And that word that's translated flood could also be translated into a phrase, a flood of nations. It could be a flood of people. It says it will be end with the flood. Until the end of the war of desolations is determined. The war of desolations is a phrase that's used in the Hebrew language to describe the entire earth being at war. The war of desolations. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Okay, A week in this case is how many years? It's seven. So when we get to the book of Revelation and we realize that there is going to be a seven-year period that we know is the Great Tribulation, who do you think makes the covenant of that one week, which is seven years? None other than the Antichrist. Notice what he does. But in the middle of the week, so he makes a covenant. So when we talk about the Antichrist making a covenant with the nation Israel, actually allowing them to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount and to worship the Lord there, then what happens? It says, but in the middle of the week, you should bring an end to the sacrifice and to the offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So it speaks of a very specific point in time, a one-week, seven-year period that will be ushered in by the rise of the little horn, the Antichrist, and that one is going to be, remember where we started, the answer to Daniel's petition. So the answer to Daniel's petition is now 2,500 years out. I'm going to share just a few things with you tonight. It is the key to understanding Bible prophecy. If you get this one, the book of Revelation actually makes sense. So for more than 2,500 years... Uh, Daniel, the Hebrew prophet, he was captive in the land of Israel. Uh, he's, he's made these pronouncements. He's talked about these things. And now in verses 24 to 27, these things are described in some detail that will happen at a time that is yet future. It will involve, in essence, two very specific things. The children of Israel and the land that they possess. 
And so when we talk about those things, what our text is saying is that this time that will come, which is yet future, which, by the way, that little scroll there in the corner that you're looking at, that is actually a piece of the Dead Sea Scroll of the book of Daniel that contains this passage. What is written there in the Hebrew language is this exact passage, and it is dated to 212 B.C., so it could not have been written in the Hebrew language in 212 B.C. without it still being prophetic. So even if Daniel was only in 212 B.C., we have a copy of this book 200 years before the Messiah set set foot on earth. The background to this is Genesis chapter 12. It says, Go into a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make to you a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. How did all the peoples of the earth get blessed through the Jewish people? His name has five letters. He's a Hebrew, and he was a carpenter. None other than Jesus. We have a Jewish Messiah, if you will. We have a Jewish Savior. All the nations of the earth have been blessed. And so God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So you ever looked at the Middle East and you start looking at it? Uh, I will give your offspring this land, he says. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. You take it. When you look at the nation of Israel and you look at what's been done to it now, if you look down the bottom of that, that area that's called Philistia down here in the corner, that is the Gaza Strip. That's basically where it is. If you look at the landmass that Israel now occupies, it's no wonder that God is allowing it to come apart because he said, it's my land, I'm letting the Jewish people have it, It belongs to me through them. I've given it to them as an inheritance. In other words, when you're messing with the land of Israel, you are messing with God. Remember the original promise. I will bless those who bless you. So why do you think it's so important that the United States of America forever be an ally of the nation Israel? I do not want to be on God's list of nations that he does not bless. And I sure don't want to be on the list that he's going to curse. So, so far as we have voice, it is imperative that we remember that what God said to Abraham, if you are a Christian and you believe this is the word of God, then you have exactly one view on the nation Israel. And it's not a political view. Well, you know, they are kind of stirring things up in the Middle East. They are God's chosen people, and God still has a plan to deliver them. And what his word says is he's going to make good on his promises. And the way he's going to make good on his promises is in the last days, those who are still standing against him by standing against Israel are going to go into the valley of Megiddo and be destroyed. That's what it says. I don't particularly want to see anybody in that group. So we need to stick to what God's word says. That land has been given to the nation Israel. It's not anybody else's to mess with. It sure isn't ours to try and force them to give it up. That is the dumbest thing that you can possibly do unless you like being at odds with God. It says there in chapter 20, 22, Surely I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
So the covenant test on Mount Moriah is that there's only one son. His name is Isaac. And Abraham says, I believe, God, that you are so capable of carrying out your promises that I am willing, if you've got to raise this young man up from the dead, you'll do it. Because the nation Israel was about to disappear. One knife throw away from being gone. And God says, don't lay a hand to the lad. God's had this, think about Joseph and his brothers. That was not a recipe for success, was it? Joseph, his brothers settle in Egypt. Jacob's buried in Hebron. Joseph and the family grow. Do you realize that at one point in time, the Jewish people numbered about 70? Joseph and his brothers were it. That's all there was. By the time they leave 400 and about 30 years of captivity in Egypt, they are now nearly a million people. They swell to nearly 2 million people while wandering in the most inhospitable land on the planet Earth. You don't think that God has his hand on keeping his promises to the nation Israel? The fact that they're even on this earth, as rightly was said by Sir Winston Churchill, is proof that God exists. Because they shouldn't exist. They were down to 70 people at the time uh, of Joseph and his brothers. By the time they spend 40 years wandering, they're now probably a couple million people. And, And they go in to possess the land. The covenant is confirmed, Exodus chapter 32. It says, now, therefore, let me be alone with my, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. God says, I so care about keeping my covenant, I'll do anything I have to do to make sure it happens. God's always been that way. So we talk about these, these prophetic things. A lot of people, how many of you have heard, oh, Christians have been saying that for a thousand years? Almost every time I talk about prophetic things. Christians have been saying Jesus is coming back for 2,000 years. The problem is they don't know their Bible, because if they knew their Bible, they would understand that God still has a plan, and just because he hasn't done anything is a sure sign that he actually loves them and wants them to repent. It's not that he's not going to carry it out. The blessing is this, and now it shall come to pass that if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God and to observe carefully his commandments, which I have commanded you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28, what he says to them is, if you keep my commandments, I will set you high above the nations of the earth. So why do you suppose the Jewish people have struggled for the last several thousand years? Because they did exactly the opposite of what God told them to do. And ultimately, when it comes time for these things to unfold, there is going to be a massive revival in the land of Israel. Because they're going to come to terms with, oh my goodness. Now I know what Daniel said. Now I understand the answer to David's prayer. Now I get what Joel was talking about. Now I understand what Zechariah and Isaiah were saying. Okay, we get it. 
Because the curse was, then the Lord said, I will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve the other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, of wood and of stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall your soul touch or your foot have any resting place. But the Lord there will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and anguish of soul. Does that not describe the Jewish people to this day? That is exactly their position in the world. So God said, if you keep my commandments, if you do what I say, I'm going to bless you, I'll exalt you. And when they have done that, that is exactly what God has done. And when they have not done that, they ended up, as it says here, scattered amongst all of the nations of the earth. Do you realize that there are nearly as many Jews in the United States as there are in Israel? They've been scattered amongst the earth. The covenant with David. We talk about the Abrahamic covenant. We talk about the Davidic covenant. When your days are fulfilled, you'll rest with your fathers, and I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Basically what he's saying is, from you, David, there is going to come one who will fulfill this. That's why those genealogies in Matthew and Luke are so important, because one of them ties us back into David the king. And so it says there, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. So if David's lineage had died out, and if we did not have a Hebrew Messiah who could be linked directly to David, who would then usher in an eternal kingdom, which is eternal life, then you can throw your Bibles away. But praise the Lord. We can trace the lineage of Jesus all the way to David the king, and thereby when he defeated death, he also established an everlasting covenant for the Jewish people through the lineage of Christ. Because in Christ there is an everlasting kingdom. So your Messiah, who you will one day stand on this earth and see, your king, who is Jewish, who is of the lineage of David, lives forever, hence this is fulfilled I will be his father, he shall be my son, and if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your throne shall be established forever. So the throne from God's position exists, and it's held in perpetuity in Christ, until the day that he sets foot on this earth and reestablishes that very throne right here on this very earth. Son of David, remember Jesus' own communication about himself, descendant of David, the Lord established that kingdom, the, the temple and all those things. It's essential to understanding this prophecy because there's only one way it can happen. It has to be eternal. And it has to involve the entire Jewish people in mass. It has to involve Jerusalem. It has to involve the rebuilding of the temple. It has to establish that kingdom forever. So it becomes very clear those things have never happened. didn't happen when Hitler almost wiped out the Jews. It did not happen in the dispersion where they've been scattered all over the earth. Solomon's temple, which was erected on the same spot. I've heard your prayer, your supplication. So there was a temple there, that temple that was mentioned there in 1 Kings chapter 9, also destroyed. The nation Israel, 
also almost completely wiped out. So God judges Israel. During the time of Isaiah, Assyria comes from the north, takes takes captive and or kills or wipes out all of the tribes of Judah, 11 of the 12, all of them but Judah. So they're all gone. God spares Judah and Jerusalem by miraculous intervention. If you look there in Isaiah 37, 38, you find out that in one night the angel of the Lord comes into the camp of the Assyrians and slays 180,000 of them. And the Jews miraculously survive to be taken into captivity and sent to Babylon, which is where we pick up the story next week. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. And God, we do know that you have a plan for the Jewish people, for your land, which they occupy. And God, we do pray, as you've encouraged us to pray, for the peace of Jerusalem. But we know that peace will only come when the Prince of Peace comes. And so, God, we ask that you would divinely intervene on their behalf. We pray that you would protect the Jewish people, that you would surround them with angels. Lord, as you did when the Assyrians came under Sennacherib, God, we pray that you would just have your hand upon them. We pray for those that are caught in the fighting, Lord, the innocent Palestinians and Lebanese and Syrians and Jordanians and Egyptians and those who wander the deserts of the Sinai to this day. Your hand is always on the innocent. And God, we pray that you would just simply spare those that uh, have declared themselves to be your friend. And God, we pray that the gospel would go forth. We pray for Pastor Chet right now, who is in Iran at this very moment. Lord, sharing the gospel in a nation where you can be killed for doing so. God, we ask your hand to be upon him. God, would you, would you bring him back safe and sound? Would you give him a vision for the ministry that will go on there? We pray for the, the Persian people, Lord. Millions of them actually love you and know you. And we pray that you would raise them up to share the gospel. And Lord, when these things unfold, this final week in mankind's history, uh, we know that you've told us about it in advance. And so, God, we look forward to that day. We pray that in the meantime... You would strengthen our faith, cause us to grow, help us to cling to the cross, help us to bless your name. Lord, we want to be found blessing you when you come. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time tonight. We ask these things in the most precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our soon coming King. Amen. 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 We'll finish it up next week, okay?